Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced for RMIT University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Gary Barker. And I'm Leon Gittler. And this is Episode 9 in our series for 2016. And today's date is April the 1st, April Fool's Day. And Leon, we've got a good program for the Fool's Day. Oh, yes. Uh, we have a terrific interview with George Lucas from Acorns Australia. I mean, basically, Acorns is a fintech app for investors, and he's going to be talking to us all about that. And uh, after that, we've got a terrific interview with Stephen Kakoulis, who's going to be talking to us all about the US Fed and what's flowing from there. And quite a lot is, too. It's, in fact, it's all a bit weird, isn't it, Janet Yellen's... Uh recent chat to the people yeah yeah anyway uh let's first of all hear from george lucas acorns grow australia limited is a 50 50 joint venture between acorns grow by the usa and in street investment limited the joint venture was established in March 2015. Acorns Grow is a way of using your small change into the share market so we recently spoke to Colton Dillian, who's from the US and he's out in Australia having a look at this new operation of theirs, the first overseas effort, and George Lucas, who heads up Acorns Grow Australia. Uh, we spoke to them on Skype, so the sound's a bit tinny, but uh, it's clear enough, I hope, and the story's really interesting. Colton Dillian, tell us about the, the genesis of Acorn Grows, when it happened and uh, how it's gone in the United States. Uh, yeah. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Acorns concept, uh, Acorns allows you to open up an investment account with as little as $5 and you can get started in minutes and uh, then we'll connect to your spending cards and every time you spend money we'll round up each transaction and we'll invest the spare change for you into a portfolio of index funds. So you go to the coffee shop, you buy a coffee for $2.50, uh, we round it up to $3 and we invest the 50 cents into the shares market on your behalf. And uh, the idea was created in 2012. Uh, our founders are a father-son duo, Walter and Jeff Cruttenden. Uh, and while Jeff was in college, he was studying finance and all of his friends were talking about investing, but very few of them actually had investment accounts. And Jeff thought that this was a shame and why couldn't students get access to the shares market like everyone else? So he talked to Walter, his father, who is a financial markets innovator. Uh, he created the investment bank for E-Trade called E-Offering. And uh, he also had a very large um, micro IPO firm out in the U.S. And they started talking about how can they get small investments. And they saw that transaction costs were getting smaller and smaller. And just as the phone brokers uh, replaced the office brokers back in the 70s and 80s, uh, now it was time for the mobile phone broker to replace the call centers and online brokers. So obviously it's pitched at the at a younger, more tech-savvy crowd. How much success has it had? It has been amazingly successful. In the U.S., we've had over 2.5 million downloads. We have more than 1.6 million members, and we've been investing money daily uh, for hundreds of thousands of people for over a year. This is... Interesting, because uh, this actually automatically invests for you, doesn't it? Correct. 
Now, uh, I take it when you uh, sign up, you have to put in all the details, like your name, your date of birth, your address, your bank account details? Yeah, that is the way it works. So just like any other brokerage, you have to, normally you would have to fill out pages and pages of information. But uh, through automation and through our platform, we've managed to get it down into a five-minute process where you put in your name, your address, uh, your BSB number, an account number, uh, and then we can immediately connect you and get you invested within a few business days. And and what what happens for me as a user? Do I tell the app to invest, say, 5 or, say, 10 or $20 a month? Is that the way it works? So we have a variety of ways you can get invested. There is lump sum investment, so you can just drop in $5, $20, $150, whenever you want. You can set up a recurring deposit on a daily, weekly, or monthly basis. So I personally invest $20 a day. And you can also do our automatic roundups, so where we watch your credit card, and every time you spend money, we round up the transaction and invest a spare change for you. So on average, our customers will invest $30 per month just through roundups. Right, and uh, and I take it the app is free, is that right? So downloading the app is free, but once you open an account and deposit money, it's $15 per annum, and if you have more than $5,000 in your account, then it changes over to a quarter percent of your assets per year. Now, Georgia, the Australian regulatory environment is very different from that in America. How did you negotiate that? Oh, we actually negotiated quite well, and we got um, we got a very good response from ASIC. And part of the technology around this is not just the, the um, IT technology, but it's the back-end legal technology, which allowed us to do fractional um, shares, which means that from your first investment of $5, you're fully invested in the market. The ownership, from the owner's point of view, how does he get dividends, and maybe how does he trade, or is the trading actually automated and in within the database that you guys are using? Sure. So you have a selection of five portfolios um, and in each one of those five portfolios is seven ETFs and you can only select one of those five portfolios and then the trading is automatic and there's no fee charged for trading. Um, so we've tried, we've kept the process as simplified. You actually own the um, ETF even though they're a fractional um, ETF and you receive all dividends associated with those fractional ETFs. What specifically are those pipe portfolios? What areas do they cover? Um, they cover everything from Australian equities, international equities, bonds and cash. Um, and we have a conservative portfolio which is more heavily weighted to cash and bonds and then an aggressive portfolio which is very heavily weighted towards um, equities, both Australian and international equities, and less exposed to bonds and cash. And then we have ranges in between those two. And do I as a user get any choice on how, how that's allocated? Sure. You can then choose from one of those five portfolios and you can switch at any time without incurring any fees. So if you feel like the market's going up, you could choose the aggressive portfolio. If you want to become conservative because you think the market is going down, you can then switch back to the conservative portfolio and you don't incur any fees in doing that. Carlton, why did you guys choose Australia um, and which other countries you're operating in at the moment? So currently, Australia is our first international territory, uh, and we're really excited to be bringing acorns to the Australian continent. And the reason why is because Australians obviously have a very similar profile to Americans in that the shares market is very advanced. People use mobile phones and spending cards frequently. 
and we really see Australia as an opportunity to expand outside of the usual North American sphere and begin to open up into the rest of the world. And we're really excited that it is one of our first international territories. Now, one of the exciting things about it, of course, is that Australia has a much greater smartphone coverage than America. Absolutely. Yeah, and also Australia has a much larger um, um, penetration of um, um, NFC payment system. So, you know, we're very used to just tapping now when we buy a coffee or we go to the supermarket. And that, that technology really has only just started to come out in the US while for, in Australia it's been here for many years. So we do a lot more electronic payments than, for example, in the US. Now, if somebody who's signed on a subscriber to Acorns wants to sell out, how, how easy is that? Oh, it's very easy. It's about two or three keystrokes on the um, app and you've got all your money out. Right, and I, I can, uh, as a user, I can uh, say further down the track, say, okay, now I want to invest, I'm investing X amount. Now I want to invest X plus amount later on. I can do that, can't I? Absolutely. Uh, there is no reason why you couldn't change your uh, $30 monthly deposit into a $30 weekly deposit or change it from a 30 weekly to 50 weekly. And there are also a lot of customers, say, for example, in the U.S. where they've had more time, um, who will be saving for a goal. So when they get to their $500 goal, they'll take their money out, and then, you know, in two months' time, they'll start saving again back into the Acorns product. So it's it's um, a very versatile product. Now, what, one of the questions that uh, does intrigue me is that you're obviously pitched a much younger crowd. Is there a difference in uh, investment strategy between them and the rest of the market? It depends, because a, a younger crowd, you might think, will have one more aggressive portfolio because they you know, can afford to take more risk because they're younger. But however, a younger crowd usually is also saving for a very short-term goal, uh, you know, to save $1,000 to go traveling or, you know, save, you know, for a, a car or, you know, deposit for a car, etc. And so when you've got a very short-term goal, you should have a much more conservative portfolio because you don't, you know, you really want the money and it's more about the um, discipline of saving. And so it's really when you start to get to about 35, you're 35, you know, late the early 30s that people can start are not and saving for much longer-term goals and therefore can take more aggressive portfolios. You can't really just say, you know, the younger generation has a different profile than the older generation. It also depends on what the, the goal they're saving for. George and Colton, thank you very much. It's a fascinating enterprise and it's going to be interesting to watch how it takes off in Australia. So thank you for your time. Thank you so much. appreciate you taking your time to interview us. Well, there you go, Leon, how to invest uh, your uh, small change in uh, in the stock market or a share of it. What a great invention it is, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Shows where technology is taking the ASX or taking stock exchanges generally. And, of course, uh, is bringing more competition in for the ASX too, isn't it? Absolutely. And uh, now let's have a chat with uh, economist Stephen Coolis, and we're going to talk all about what came out of the U.S. Fed this week. Stephen Coolis, Janet Yellen gave a speech to the Economic Club of New York uh, saying that uh, the Fed was quite right in being cautious about raising interest rates and she says they're in no hurry to do it because of global risks surrounding China and the uh, collapse in the price of oil. Um, what's your assessment of it? 
Look, I think central bankers have a tough job. And if you're the chair of the US Federal Reserve, you've got one of the toughest jobs of all, because what you say and do impacts on all markets around the globe. So look, the US economy is doing okay. We've still got a lower unemployment rate. We've still got uh, the growth momentum being okay. Obviously, first quarter GDP is likely to be quite subdued, maybe around one and a half percent in annual terms. So she's managing this issue of the economy that's got some traction, but certainly isn't going anywhere near overheating. And while the unemployment rate is nice and low for the US, it's uh, sort of a reflection of uh, still a large amount of underemployment and the jobs that have been created are generally low-wage jobs. So that's the sort of domestic side. And then, as you touched on, it's it's China. You know, everybody's looking at China, including the US. And what's happening there is really uncertain. Oil prices are weak. Commodity prices, even though they've picked up a bit in the last month or two, they're still well down on where they were. And that's certainly something to think about in terms of where the risks are in the global economy. I noticed that Barclays put out a statement the other day saying uh, everyone will be trampled in there's a rush to the exits for uh, co- over commodities. <laughs> Yeah, look, that one is a really tough call. And with all due respect to everybody, and certainly myself, I put myself at the top of this list, it's really hard to forecast commodity prices. And uh, that's not to say that we shouldn't try or that there are good reasons to sort of look at some of the risks there. But the commodity price cycle is one where, obviously, at the end of the day, you can't have any sustained fall in prices below the cost of production. And while the cost of mining iron ore and getting oil is still relatively low, you know, when we when we were at those low points in the cycle back in January, you know, oil at $28 a barrel, I think iron ore got to $37, $38 a tonne, you know, that, that was really pushing the friendship for a lot of um, big producers of commodities. And, and that, to my mind, was not really sustainable. Of course, markets can overshoot and stay there for a little while, but they can't stay there forever. So the critical question is, what is the sort of demand from China? You know, they're moving to a services-based economy and they've got a big overhang of projects and the like. And we've also got you know, a lot of global production still. So the, the, the question on commodity prices is one that's really very difficult to be confident about. That said, you know, if the US grows, demands some exported uh, manufactured goods from China, if India gets its act together, you know, it's, it's not all doom and gloom. I don't think we're anywhere near a global slowdown of any significance. But the question that obviously Janet Yellen and the Fed and, and all of us are looking at is, you know, have we got any momentum to the upside? But at the moment, uh, it doesn't look likely. Right. Now, uh, at the beginning of the year or, or the end of last year, it was forecast that the Fed would increase rates four times this year. Now it's been pushed back to twice. And Janet Yellen didn't give any indication of when the Fed would be increasing rates. When do you see that happening? In my view, they've still got the bias to hike rates. The official rates now are currently 038 know, Let's just round it up to 0.5%. So it's still stunningly low. Um, you know, the 10-year government bond yield this morning is at 1.8%, still stunningly low. So we've got, you know, interest rates across the whole yield curve at, at levels that, you know, are rarely seen in, in history, even though we've already had one rate hike and bond yields over the last little while have crept up a bit. Now, the $64 question, this is the one that, you know, I think we got to keep focusing on. Uh, we mentioned the labour market in the US, uh, these sorts of things. Underlying inflation or the core inflation rate in the US is creeping up. Now, I'm not going to be saying that they've got an inflation problem, far from it. But when you've got monetary policy so very, very easy, you know, with these incredibly low interest rates across the whole yield curve, are we in the early stages of an inflation pickup? 
so that we actually get inflation being more skewed to their target, which of course is 2%, uh, maybe even 2.5%, which would be no bad thing. Uh, and if that's the case, then the, the, the Fed just keeps tweaking rates higher on a sort of uh, trial and error basis. But look, uh, the two rate hikes by year end, yeah, that, that seems about right. You know, they'll probably go in the third quarter and once in the fourth quarter of this year once we get, hopefully, signs that the Chinese economy is stabilised and maybe the US is continuing to grow at an okay pace. I noticed that the uh, US dollar has uh, fallen and uh, the Aussie's up over 76 cents. It, it got a real boost. So this is one of the issues that, again, is a, a really interesting one from, from the US perspective. If they're sounding dovish, and I think Janet Yellen mentioned QE as a possible in a, in a sort of a worst-case scenario, the market's got a little carried away on that. But in that sort of scenario, the US dollar would fall. Now, I'm not saying that this is um, going to happen. But, yes, the Aussie dollar got a real boost from that uh, dovish interpretation of what Ms. Yellen was having to say. And of course, you know, the euro, the Canadian dollar, the British pound all rose very strongly as well. So, you know, interestingly, the, the Aussies really got a bit of a bit of a kick to it now. And again, that's when we look at our domestic economy, that's with the RBA clearly on hold. And if you get this scenario where we're on hold at 2% and our 10-year bonds are around about, you know, 25 to 2 and 3 quarter percent, there's still a big yield pickup for investors around the world. And, um, while ever that is the case, you know, the Aussie dollar is probably going to get well supported. Given that the Aussie dollar is nudging up around 80 cents, I mean, BT Investment Management the other day came out and said uh, the RBA's hand was is going to be forced and it will have to cut interest rates at some stage. What's your view about that? I think that's a little old-fashioned in a sense. Um, first of all, interest rates do not drive currencies. You know, we're seeing that with for example, the Japanese yen over the last 20 years, where I think its interest rates have been lower than the US for virtually every day of the last 20 years, and the yen's been both strong and weak. So, you know, you're not going to target the currency or really manage your economy all that well through uh, adjusting uh, interest rates. That's the first thing. The other one, of course, is that when the RBA was anxious and concerned about the stronger Aussie dollar late last year, commodity prices were actually lower than they were now. So things have changed. You know, again, as we're sort of making the point with Janet Yellen, when things change, central bankers change. I dare say, while RBA Governor Glenn Stevens said the Aussie dollar may be getting ahead of itself, I think was the quote that he used uh, in a speech last week. Um, you know, here we are in the seventy-five to eighty cent range. Let's assume we're there for this next little while. If commodity prices stay roughly where they are, that is, oil at forty dollars a barrel, give or take, iron ore at fifty to sixty a ton, which is where it's been for a couple of weeks now. If that's the case, then clearly we've had a change in circumstances and having a weaker dollar is not necessarily the right uh, issue for the economy right now. Now, of course, if it were to fall, it would be a stimulus for the economy and, and that would be you know, something the RBA would have to be uh, managing as well. So I don't think the currency by itself will force the RBA to cut or hike for that matter. Rather, what happens to the inflation numbers here over the next little while? We get the um, March quarter the CPI in about three and a half weeks' time. That'll be really important. Uh, and then, of course, what's happening to the to the rest of the economy, the labour market? We've had you know, quite respectable employment numbers in the last 12 months, and uh, that's one of the cri more critical reasons why the RBA just hasn't been adjusting rates. Uh, where do you see uh, things tracking with employment? The ANZ job ads, the, you know, the, the component of employment within the NAB um, business expectation survey, you know, they're suggesting that demand for labour is still okay. Again, it's like this um, not too hot, not too cold. It's sort of in the middle sort of uh, part of the economy. So my hunch on employment is that we're probably going to see 
employment growing at close to trend. That's, you know, 15-odd thousand per month, aside from those horrid, volatile uh, monthly numbers from the ABS. But, yeah, but as, as likely as the unemployment rate is going to be holding, you know, at 6 or maybe a touch lower, we're currently at 5.8. So we get the unemployment rate in that 55 to 6% region. And as long as that's the case, I think the RBA will be on hold. Uh, they don't need to cut to really drive the economy stronger, um, nor do they need to do anything else. So I think we're in this period where you know, the RBA has been on hold for the last, I think it's 11 months we're coming up to. Maybe we'll get another, I don't know, three, six, maybe even 12 months when they're on hold. So no movement in interest rates then for perhaps another year? Well, it's possible. I was a bit more hawkish before. I was a bit more optimistic about some of the global conditions, and I'm just having to sort of hose that down a little bit. But, you know, when you look at what the RBA is doing and saying, they're probably really content just to let things roll along, let this house price cycle cool off, which, we're, which we are seeing. They would be happy to see that. And they realise the limitations of interest rates. You know, Mr Stevens has made that very clear that, you know, a 25 or even 50 points of rate cuts or something, you know, can't be the, the cure-all for the economy. Uh, they'll still adjust rates when they need to. But for now, I think it's just more a case of on hold and, and when circumstances change. And if they look like changing, that's when they'll either put them down or put them up. Which is kind of what the message we were getting from Janet Yellen. Indeed, indeed, that's the issue. And again, just to be on the ride to the defence of uh, poor central bankers, yeah, because they cop a lot of flack, oh, she changed her mind, or she was hawkish before, now she's dovish. Look, central bankers, uh, as we said at the start, are mere mortals. They look at the economic news like you and me. They try to judge what's the best thing to do. And they do like to give a bit of guidance. That That's absolutely a legitimate way that they manage monetary policy. But when they said, look, we, we thought we'd hike four times and they get the Chinese economy slowing more than they thought, well, they're allowed to change their mind. Stephen Coolis, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Leon. So what do you think, Leon? Well, yes, uh, obviously uh, central bankers uh, have absolutely no idea of what's happening in the world. They're all human, as uh, Stephen Coolis says, and they're all watching very closely. Not much confidence around there underneath it all, is there? No, no, no. Uh, well, compared to their predictions uh, late last year and uh, now going on, it's uh, everything has changed, yeah. But, uh, I mean, that's all part of the news because uh, um, Federal Reserve Chair Janet Yellen made it quite clear not to expect too many interest rate hikes out of the uh, Fed. Uh, she said global and financial institutions Uncertainty, driven largely by the slowdown in China, the collapse in oil prices, has heightened the risk to the US economy and justified a slower path of interest rate increases. And her speech to the Economic Club of New York made it clear that it was appropriate for the Federal Open Market Committee to proceed cautiously in adjusting policies. Now, of course, Fed's left their benchmark lending rate unchanged uh, this month at 0.25% to 0.5% while revising down their median estimates for the number of rate increases that will be warranted this year to two hikes. That's down from four projected in December. And uh, Yellen said growth in China is slowing and there's uncertainty about how the nation is handling the transition from exports to domestic sources of growth. And she said further declines in oil prices would have what she says adverse effects on the global economy. Yeah, it's very odd. And of course, at the same time of all that, the Aussie dollar has gone through 76 cents. Because the US dollar has fallen as a result of Janet Yellen's comments. Mind you, the US stock market has risen. Yeah, and that's interesting. People are getting out of money and back into stocks. That's right. Now, uh, Forbes 
has released a report saying Australia is one in seven countries most likely to suffer a debt crisis within the next three years. Indeed, it's the second most likely. The country most likely to fall into a crisis is China, according to Forbes. Australia comes in at number two, followed by Sweden, Hong Kong, South Korea, Canada and Norway. Now, what Forbes did was it analysed the rate of credit growth compared with gross domestic product and its calculations are based on private and public debt data compiled by the Bank of International Settlements. According to Forbes, the countries on the list have a high level of private debt as a proportion of GDP and an escalation in that ratio over the last few years. All seven countries have a private debt-to-GDP ratio of 175% of GDP, and alarmingly, the increase in private debt last year exceeded 10% of GDP. Now, as a rule, private debt levels exceeding 1.5 times of GDP and private debt grown by 20% over a five-year period triggers an economic crisis or recession. So let's just watch that space. Yeah, indeed. And, of course, in the middle of all that, we've got... uh what looks like a pretty serious drop in the value of apartment prices in Melbourne, Sydney and uh, and Brisbane. That, that's right. That Well, in Melbourne, they've fallen by something like 30%. Yep, that's right. And uh, there's a worry about bridging finance for the people who uh, signed on the bottom line. That's right. Now, uh, Malcolm Turnbull has come up with a tax deal for the states. And basically, he's proposed giving the states direct access to a share of income tax. What he's saying is you, the states, can levy your own tax. We, the Commonwealth, will level levy a smaller proportion of tax and states can make up for it. <laughs> what, in effect, he's doing is he's introducing an American-style system where we're going to have eight different tax regimes across the country. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, only Malcolm Turnbull could turn a Commonwealth problem of taxation into a state problem turn one single tax regime into eight, not increase the money that's around, and call it innovation. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but, uh, you know, most of the state premiers have put thumbs down on it anyway, haven't they? Well, well the problem with it is it's going to uh, create all sorts of problems for smaller states like South Australia and Tasmania. And at the moment, all the states are pretty divided on it. I mean... New South Wales has come out against it. Uh, South Australia's against it. In Victoria, Daniel Andrews called it a thought bubble <laughs> and uh, said the real <laughs> issues was the cuts. Mm. The only one who's come out in favour of it is Western Australia. Yeah. So anyway, all of that's going to be put to the premiers at a meeting on Friday. They're not expected to sign off on it, but uh, I can't see it getting up. No, I don't think it will. I mean, maybe there could be some adjustment in healthcare and uh, education, but it's not going to be in taxing in uh, in the states. I can't see it. Can you? No, no. Now, speaking of tax, the mining industry has joined the Business Council of Australia calling on the government to cut company tax, citing a report that claims cutting the tax from 30% to 20% would benefit not only business but workers and consumers. And to bolster its case, the Minerals Council released a study it commissioned by Canadian public policy academic and expert in international corporate tax regimes, Jack Mintz. And the study finds that the benefit of a company tax expend beyond business and two-thirds of the company tax burden is passed on in terms of higher prices, lower wages and layoffs. At the same time, the report finds that Australia's company tax rate has not kept pace with the rest of the world. Like in 2005, Australia's 30% corporate tax rate was ranked 14th among the OECD. Ten years later, Australia's ranked as having the sixth highest level of company tax in the OECD. And the OECD average has fallen from 28.5% to 25.3%. 
Now, the Turnbull government, of course, signaled it's planning a company tax cut in the budget while excluding the likelihood of lower taxes. But at the same time, Gary, the Australian Institute has put out analysis which found that cutting the company tax rate will neither create the jobs nor produce the economic growth the governing business lobby claim it would. And they've done a historical examination of Australia's business tax reductions and that of comparable OECD economies. And the Australian Institute found the drop from a company tax rate that was nearly 50 cents in the dollar when it began falling in 1988 towards its current 30 cent rate in the early 2000s failed to produce the much-vaunted growth dividends that proponents assert is the automatic result of such a move. And they say the experience of other countries tend to support the findings show that GDP growth rates in low company tax jurisdictions are no different from the higher ones. Yeah, so underneath that, we've got a question of how do you stimulate the Australian economy? Indeed, and that that is a huge issue. And, of course, uh, but company tax will be a key issue in the... Uh, federal election and uh the uh, Committee for Economic Development of Australia has come up with a radical blueprint to close the budget deficit and has proposed measures including halving the capital gains discount, higher taxes on superannuation, reducing industry tax concession across the board by 25%, reducing work-related tax deductions, raising taxes on luxury cars, tobacco and alcohol by 15% and cutting the fuel tax credit scheme by half. Now, CEDA released a report outlining five options that would each deliver by 2018-19 around $2 billion in spending cuts and around $15 billion in revenue measures. And the repair suggestions are all suggested in the various options. And the CEDA's team includes CEDA Chairman Paul McClintock, Reserve Bank of Australia Board Member John Edwards, Victoria University Professor Rodney Maddock, former top Liberal Federal Bureaucrat Michael Teague Keating, and former WA State Under-Treasurer John Langeland. And now, the important thing to remember, Gary, is that Australia's last budget surplus was before the 2008 financial crisis. Both Labor and the coalition government have blamed the deficit on falling commodity prices and low wages growth, but the CEDA report sets out measures that actually can be taken to address this problem. Well, let's hope somebody can do it anyway. We badly need it. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, uh, at the same time, the uh, prospect of a double dissolution election is worrying consumers. The ANZ Roy Morgan Consumer Confidence Index fell 1.3% the week ending March 27. Levels have edged lower in the past fortnight following recent highs. That's been interesting in terms of consumer confidence, Gary. People are yeah. a bit rattled about the prospect of a double dissolution election. Yeah, they do. well, probably if he does go through to a double dissolution and sorts out the Senate, it would be good, but it's going to be very strange, very odd. Well, yeah, and uh, there's a lot of uncertainty because we don't know uh, whether we're going to have a whole lot of more independence in the House. It's kind of independent time, isn't it? You've got uh, quite a lot of activity. I mean, Windsor wanting to come back in up in Queensland as well. That's right, that's right, and uh, that's... Uh... <laughs> forcing Barnaby Joyce out of a seat. Now, um, the uh, federal government has given the green light to potential competitors to the ASX, creating alternative spaces where investors can trade stocks. And this would be a big change for the ASX because at the moment its only competition is a a four-and-a-half-year-old GX, which is a stock and derivatives operator regulated by ASIC. And the Treasurer, Scott Morrison, also announced as a sweetener the government would release ownership restrictions on the ASX, and that would increase the potential for the stock market operator to attract foreign capital and to emerge with others. I mean, this is a trend happening around the world because, of course, you've got the London Stock Exchange now talking about a merger with the Deutsche Börse for a $28 billion deal. Yeah, well, didn't the ASX have a bit of a suitor about two or three years ago? 
was Singapore. That's right. That's right. That's right. And uh, mm. now carsales.com has bought an 83% stake in Chile's leading automotive classifieds website for US 15 million. The group is looking at Latin America. It recently expanded there, there with Mexico back in October. So that's interesting. Car sales sees that as a growth market. Yeah. Now, uh, the other interesting one is Medibank Private has gone for a banker to boost its profits. It's appointed former National Australia Bank Chief Executive Craig Drummond as new Chief Executive Officer, who will take over on the 4th of July from George Sabides, who will retire after 14 years at the helm. And Drummond, of course, quit the NAB in February after overseeing the bank's capital raising and disposal of overseas assets, including Clydesdale Banks. And... Um, when he quit the NAB, he was no longer said he was no longer interested in being a CFO. I think uh, Drummond saw himself as being the CEO of the NAB. Yeah, for sure. He's going to be cutting costs at uh, Medibank and uh, really raising it to boost, boosting its profits. Yeah, but you know, Savides has done a pretty good job, both you know, when it was a government instrumentality and and in privatising Medibank. And I think it's a good time for him to retire. Fourteen years in the chairs a lot. That's right. And finally, Gary, uh, CPA Australia plans to take on the financial planning heavyweights like the AMP, Commonwealth Bank, West Bank and National Australia Bank. It's now recruiting to enter the market. CPA Australia Advice, which is a new subsidiary, has just finished a six-city tour promoting its multi-million dollar technology platform for financial planning and the new licensing regime ahead of it receiving an Australian financial services license. Now, CBA Australia became a commercial financial services dealer group last June, following regulatory change to the lucrative $550 billion self-managed superannuation market. Now, potentially, it could become one of Australia's biggest financial planning agencies. And uh, I reckon they're in, a, they're in the box seat, Gary, because their advisors will receive no commissions, no asset-based fees. They're not, it's not a business selling financial planning products. It's not tied to any bank. It's a total independence advice only model and it's going to challenge incumbents when public trust in banker aligned groups is at an all time low following scandals at outlets like the Commonwealth Financial Planning and Macquarie Private Wealth where clients lost billions of dollars after receiving conflicted advice. Yep, I think you're absolutely right. And if you look at the history of CPA over the last few years, it's been growing and it is very smart. And uh, I think this sort of independence that they offer will be very attractive. That's right. And that's it for this week, Gary. Good, Leon. That's very good. And uh, next week, we're going to be talking to Noga Edelston uh, from the startup Urban Outsource. That's going to be fascinating. Yeah, she's very interesting, really. Uh, an ex-lawyer at uh, Yahoo. That's right. That's right. And uh, in the meantime, you can keep in touch with us on Twitter at TalkingBizBZ or on Facebook. In the meantime, stay safe. And we look forward to talking to you next week.